When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover the ACOG updated guidelines on intrapartum management of intraamniotic infection, the updated nomenclature, diagnosis, and treatment recommendations. Intraamniotic infection, also known as chorioamnionitis, is an infection with resultant inflammation of any combination of the amniotic fluid, placenta, fetus, fetal membranes, or the decidua. Recently, some authors have suggested changing the name of the condition to intraamniotic infection and inflammation to more accurately reflect the full spectrum of the disease process. This remains an evolving area, and for the purpose of this review, which focuses on the management of suspected or confirmed infection, the use of the term intraamniotic infection is retained to identify this condition. The information for this podcast comes from the August 2017 of Updated guideline from ACOG, which is committee opinion number 712. Intraamniotic infection often is polymicrobial in origin and commonly involves aerobic and anaerobic bacteria and it frequently originates from ascending infection from the vaginal flora. Intraamniotic infection is also associated with acute neonatal morbidity like neonatal pneumonia, meningitis, sepsis, and even death. The use of intrapartum antibiotic treatment protocols for GBS or in response to evolving signs of intramniotic infection during labor has been associated with a nearly tenfold decrease in group B strep specific neonatal sepsis. Decreases in non group B strep neonatal infections have also been noted. Now, intramniotic infection can be associated with long-term complications for the infant, like bronchopulmonary dysplasia and even cerebral palsy, potentially due to the effect of the inflammation alone. Now, a recent meta-analysis of about 15 studies found a significantly higher relative risk of cerebral palsy among primarily premature infants exposed to either histological choreo, which is choreo found on pathological review of the placenta, or clinical chorioamnionitis. It is nonetheless important to acknowledge that the overall absolute risk of cerebral palsy still remains very low at about 2 per 1,000 live births. Now, it's not just an issue of fetal morbidity. Maternal morbidity from intramniotic infection can also occur and can be significant. This can include dysfunctional labor requiring increased intervention, postpartum uterine atony with hemorrhage, endometritis, peritonitis, sepsis, adult respiratory distress syndrome, and rarely death. Okay, well, let's get into the diagnosis of this condition. The diagnosis of intramniotic infection can be established objectively by amniotic fluid culture or gram stain or both and biochemical analysis. But most women at term will have this diagnosis made primarily clinically. 
In 2017, the American College of OBGYN, along with the Maternal Fetal Medicine Society, convened a special panel and diagnosed three different categories for maternal fever in labor. The first was isolated maternal fever. The second is suspected intramniotic infection. And the third is intramniotic infection confirmed. The new definitions distinguish suspected and confirmed intramniotic infections according to clinical and lab or pathological findings and provide standardized temperature criteria to diagnose intrapartum fever. So according to this expert working group and the consensus opinion, Isolated maternal fever is defined as either a single oral temperature of 39 degrees or higher or an oral temperature of 38 to 38.9 degrees Celsius that persists when the temperature is repeated after 30 minutes. Suspected intramniotic infection is based on clinical criteria which includes maternal intrapartum fever and one or more of the following maternal leukocytosis, purulent cervical drainage, or fetal tachycardia. Confirmed intraamniotic infection is based on a positive amniotic fluid test result like a gram stain, glucose level, or culture results consistent with infection, or placental pathology demonstrating histological evidence of placental infection or inflammation. Okay, now we have to clarify here that in clinical practice, confirmed intraamniotic infection among women in labor at term will most commonly be made after delivery based on the histopathological study of the placenta. Therefore, until better and less invasive intrapartum diagnostic tools become available, any practical distinction between suspected and confirmed intramniotic infection will remain meaningful only in research settings and not for the OBGYN in typical practice. Diagnosis of confirmed histological intramniotic infection in the postpartum period, in other words, when the placenta comes back with a diagnosis of inflamed chorion and amnion. This does not alter the post-delivery maternal treatment. So that's the clinical pearl. Diagnosis of confirmed histological intramniotic infection in the postpartum period by pathological review of the placenta does not alter post-delivery maternal treatment. All right, well, let's deviate here for just a minute and talk about the condition of the isolated maternal fever. In clinical practice, an isolated maternal fever is a common scenario facing obstetrical providers, and this is an isolated temperature even without additional criteria or evidence of infection or persistent temperature elevation. Now, few data persist to guide appropriate management of women with isolated intrapartum fever in the absence of other clinical signs suggesting intramural infection. Isolated intrapartum fever alone, whether due to infection or not, has been associated with poor short-term and long-term neonatal outcomes. The exact mechanism of such an effect remains unclear, although fetal hyperthermia and associated changes in the metabolic rate is hypothesized to potentiate the negative effects of tissue hypoxia. Prospective randomized control trials are still needed to guide us better of the management of intrapartum fever. But currently, given the potential benefit for the woman and the newborn, antibiotics should be considered in the setting of isolated maternal fever, unless a source other than intramniotic infection is identified and is well documented. 
whether or not a decision is made to initiate intrapartum antimicrobial therapy, the occurrence of maternal intrapartum fever should be communicated to the neonatal care team. Newer pediatric recommendations rely less on the clinical diagnosis of suspected intramniotic infection and more on consideration of a variety of risk factors and newborn clinical status to determine neonatal management. Okay, when we come back, let's talk about post-delivery recommendations, because according to the 2017 updated guidelines, post-delivery recommendations have kind of changed. All right, let's get into post-delivery recommendations. Intrapartum antimicrobial agents administered for suspected or confirmed intramniotic infection should not be continued automatically postpartum. Now, this is a change from prior therapies where the prior treatments and the prior norm was to give antibiotics until the patient was afebrile for at least 24 or 48 hours. Again, according to the latest bulletin from the college, routine continuation of antibiotics should not occur post postpartum. Rather, extension of antimicrobial therapy should be based on risk factors for postpartum endometritis. Data suggests that women who have vaginal deliveries are less likely to have endometritis and may not require postpartum antibiotics. Now, for women undergoing cesarean deliveries, at least one additional dose of antimicrobial agents after delivery is recommended. However, the presence of other maternal risk factors like bacteremia or persistent fever in the postpartum period may be used to guide continuation of antimicrobial therapy, the duration of antimicrobial therapy given, or both in vaginal and cesarean deliveries. According to the college, the recommended primary regimen for the treatment of suspected or confirmed intramniotic infection is ampicillin and gentamicin IV as an alternative in patients with mild penicillin allergy. ANSEF and gentamicin can be given. In patients with severe penicillin allergy, clindamycin or vancomycin with gentamicin should be given. Now, post-cesarean, one additional dose of the chosen regimen is indicated with the addition of clindamycin 900 milligrams or metronidazole 500 milligrams for at least one additional dose. Now, a quick note about C-sections which occur intrapartum. Remember that the recent C-SOAP trial, that's C-section, optimal antibiotic prophylaxis, calls for the additional antibiotic of Zithromax at 500 milligrams to be given at time of C-section when the surgery occurs intrapartum or with membranes ruptured in addition to standard first-generation cephalosporins because that trial showed an overall decrease in wound composite morbidity. All right, team, let's wrap up this podcast with a quick review about neonatal implications of a diagnosis of intramniotic infection. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the American Academy of Pediatrics provide guidelines for assessing risk of neonatal infection. These guidelines recommend lab studies and empiric antibiotic therapy for all newborns delivered from women with a suspected or confirmed intramniotic infection. 
Now, currently, such recommendations are being reevaluated. Recent data on the development of the neonatal microbiome and the role of early antibiotic exposures suggest that antibiotic therapy in the neonatal period may not be entirely benign. Multivariate risk assessment and increased reliance on clinical observation may safely decrease the number of well-appearing term newborns treated empirically with antibiotics. In all cases, isolated maternal fever and suspected or confirmed intramniotic infection should be communicated to neonatal caregivers at birth. Now, regardless of evolving national recommendations and local variations in approach, such infants always will require enhanced clinical surveillance for signs of developing infection. Okay, this wraps up our review of intraamniotic infection and its management. The information for this podcast came from the ACOG Committee Opinion, which was number 712. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Um.